So, like Jeff mentioned and like I mentioned as well, we are beginning to journey into the book of First John. So this will fill out the remainder of our summer. Similar to First John, we're going to study it in the way that we studied uh, the Psalms uh, a couple of Januarys ago. It would have been two Januarys ago. And then uh, the Lord's Prayer this last January. We have entered into this journey with six or seven or eight other churches in Spokane. Uh, churches that are like-minded, churches that uh, have a, a thrust towards church planning, that are about groups, that are about missional living. We've joined hands with these other churches and their leadership and said, let's journey through this book together. Let's preach this book together as we go through the summer. So every Thursday, uh, Russ and myself and Jeff and whoever can make it, we meet with this group of other guys and we uh, read the scripture together, we study the scripture together, and we kind of uh, generate an outline. And then I, as speaking here uh, today, would take that outline and fill it in and contextualize it for our church. But this is really a uh, what I think is a pretty profound statement of church unity in Spokane, that we're taking some small steps to try to uh, break down those walls that we so often put up between churches. And we all have our own series and our own things, and we're saying, let's come together and let's rally behind one central message this summer. So it's pretty cool. Um, which, which makes, I think, this book even come alive more for me. So this morning will be um, pretty introductory in nature. That's why we did introductions to begin our time with. This is, uh, we're going to be studying the prologue of this book, the introduction of this book. And before we jump into some of the meat or theology of this, I want to give you a little bit of context of who's writing this, where's this coming from, and, and what are some of these, uh, what's this writer addressing? So first and foremost, it's written by the Apostle John. Some commentators uh, would disagree with this, would maybe point towards, it could be a different author, even several authors. Uh, but by and large, most people say the Apostle John wrote this. The Apostle John is the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, better known as the beloved disciple. So also the person who wrote the Gospel of John. And if you read the Gospel of John, you know that he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved oftentimes. There is no formal address, so as you read Paul's letters, oftentimes there's this very formal address. There is no formal address in this book. It's not to a specific person, uh, and it really addresses some pretty broad themes. Most likely it was an epistle to a number of different churches in a certain location, so it wasn't specific to one church or to one person. It was to a broad variety of churches, all kind of dealing with different contexts, different issues, but all generally located in the same, uh, the same area. It's, uh, it is um, kind of a, a personal letter, letter in nature, and it's better to think about this as, uh, I read somewhere, it's better to think about this as an internal office memo addressing policy. So if you frame it that way, that this letter looks like an internal office memo addressing policy. So again, not towards a specific person or to a specific uh, situation necessarily, but kind of a broad, sweeping letter that's addressing internal po uh, policy about what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. So as much as John does address specific things in the letter, the nature is broad and sweeping, and it addresses just in generally, what does Christian discipleship look like? What does living with your brother, uh, with your sister, what does living in fellowship really look like? How do we put flesh to that stuff? Most likely written towards the end of the first century, and John really does address two main issues. So again, it's broad and sweeping, but there are two underlying issues that John speaks into, the context that he speaks into. Most notably is this docetic belief. So in this time, in the first century, there was a, uh, an uprising of what was called docetism or a docetic belief. And here's what that means. 
Defined narrowly, it's the doctrine according to which the phenomenon of Christ, his historical and bodily existence, and thus above all the human form of Jesus, was altogether mere semblance without true reality. Broadly, it's taken as the belief that Jesus only seemed to be human and that his physical body was phantasm. I just wanted to say the word phantasm. Isn't that a great word? It's fantastic. So, this docetic belief is the idea that Jesus wasn't actually human. He was God. He came and he was here, but it was more like uh, a hologram or something along those lines. That there wasn't actually flesh to his bones. And this was a very common belief that was beginning to rise in the church and specifically in this area, that people were beginning to have this docetic belief that, well, Jesus actually never was human. He didn't take human form ever. He was God, certainly, but he didn't really incarnate himself into physical flesh, into the form of a human man. Secondly, John writes, addressing the brokenness and division within the the Christian community, within the community of, of these churches that he was writing to. The church's meeting in this area, there was division beginning to uprise. The church was becoming fractioned. People were in arguments, they were in disagreements, and it was fracturing these little churches, these home churches, however we want to frame that. And so the book really speaks into that conflict, into the conflict of Christian community. He speaks into this saying, listen, we need to come together. Our love needs to actually take form, and that means that we need to, instead of dividing, we need to unite under the belief of Jesus Christ. And so it's into this context that John writes is this powerful letter. And I believe that it really does speak into our context as well, as we can see some of these things in our context. So let's, let's read this, uh, these first four verses together. So if you have your Bible, you can open to 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and we'll read this together this morning. <clears throat> Here's what it says in my Bible. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ." These things we write so that our joy may be complete. The first thing I notice when I read this is that is one incredibly complex run-on sentence. (laughs) It's really just two sentences, the first one being all uh, the first three verses, and then he ends by saying these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The passage is clearly introductory. It's the prologue to this book. But it does speak a couple of relevant truths, and there's three relevant truths that I think that we can draw out of this text. So in laying this foundation and setting up this introduction, John accomplishes a few things. The first being this. He establishes his credibility by appealing to his experience. If you read that throughout all four of those verses, really throughout all uh, three of those first verses, one, two, and three, what John is saying is, listen, I have experienced the living God what I have seen, what I have heard, what I have touched with my own hands was the living God. He establishes his credibility by saying, I am an eyewitness. I saw Jesus Christ. I lived with Jesus Christ. What I bring is from personal experience, not deep theological study, 
not even stories that were passed on for me, but real experience. I'm not retelling these stories. I'm simply conveying, conveying my experience, the fact that I spent days and weeks and years in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, put yourself as a first, uh, as a first century Christian meeting in this little house towards the end of that first century. What would it have been like to receive this letter from somebody who was an eyewitness? Presumably, one, maybe even two generations had passed at this point. The people who had seen Jesus, who had listened to him preach, who had walked with him, most of them were gone, had been martyred or had died of natural causes at this point. And so you receive this letter in your context from somebody who says, listen, I was there. This is who Jesus was. What would that have been like? I remember as a kid sitting with my grandfather. He's passed since now, but my grandpa was born in 1912. And as I was uh, kind of becoming school age and learning things about the history of the United States, I used to sit with my grandfather and ask him questions about World War II. I used to ask him questions about what was it like to live during the Great Depression? What was that like when you had your first TV in your house? Or when you heard that people landed on the moon? He was an eyewitness to a lot of these things. Now, he didn't land on the moon, certainly, but he was there when it happened. And I can remember sitting there and hearing those stories and then thinking to myself, ah, Grandpa's an expert on this stuff. He knows this. He was there. He read the papers. He watched it on the TV. He was there when JFK was shot, and he remembered the emotions that he felt at that moment. Those are experiences that many of us don't have. Now, we'll have similar experiences that we pass on to our kids and our grandchildren, but sitting in that moment with Grandpa and feeling like, oh, he's an expert, he was there, he was an eyewitness to those things. John establishes himself very, very clearly in these first couple of verses as a credible authority on the subject of Jesus Christ. I was with him, I heard him, I saw him with my own eyes, I touched the living God. And therefore, he's able to speak powerfully and authoritatively on the subject. The second thing John does is this. He establishes his message through proclamation. John, as an authority, begins to unpack this message to some degree here. The one I testify about is the eternal life. He has always been, was with, and always will be with the Father. He was manifested to us, the eternal and divine Jesus, put on flesh and lived with me. Again, going back to that credibility, saying, listen, the one I testify to, this Jesus, he was God, but he put on flesh. Now, John begins to address this docetic belief right away in this first couple of verses. He says, for all those people who do not believe that God could have put on flesh, could have incarnated himself, listen, I was there. I saw it happen. I recently read a book where the author argues that the same point, this idea of docetism or this docetic belief may have creeped itself into our culture that we may at some level try to separate the divine Jesus from the human Jesus. This author contends that at, at some level we may even believe in docetism, that we've separated that. He says this, instead of using a big God, in quotes, to burnish a little Jesus' credentials, we should use a little Jesus to bring a big God down to size. We should be ready for the surprise that God is someone small and human like Jesus. This author begins to argue for the point of, 
let's not always try to extract this, this divine God from the human God. Let's make sure that we're holding these things in balance, that he was fully God, but he was also fully human. And sometimes we kind of push that human side off. I wonder if that's true for us. I read that, and, I, and I, it, it paused me. I stopped, and I said, is that true for me? Do I separate those things? I wonder if by focusing on the divinity of Jesus, we subtly are able to distance ourselves from the reality of God. God is so big, he's so powerful, that there's no way I can actually be in relationship with him. And in a sense, it gets us off the hook from truly living like a disciple. Well, God is big and powerful. He doesn't understand what I go through. So therefore, maybe discipleship looks different. Maybe I don't need to live fully into the ways that he's called me into. But when we begin to understand the humanity of Jesus, when we understand that God is not distance, but actually came to be in proximity with us, with human form, how does that change our view of relationship? How does that change the view that we, uh, or how does that change the way that we view the relationship that we can have with the living God? How does that change the way that we understand obedience? That same author writes this, and this is uh, going to take me a minute or two to read, but I think this is really powerful. He extrapolates what this human Jesus would have been like. So get comfortable here, and I'm going to read this for a moment. Close your eyes if you need to just focus on these words, but this is what he says. A wandering teacher, perhaps a bit weather-beaten from too many days in the sun, too many nights under the stars. He roams the countryside, enters a town and leaves it almost as quickly. A little clutch of friends shuffles alongside him. Curious crowds run out to see him. The sick and the mad clamor for his attention. He speaks to people or simply touches them, and with amazement and gratitude they testify to being healed. Jesus asks them, please do not talk about it. His ears seem to hear what others don't, especially the silent cries of human need. He cannot resist faces lined by suffering. His reputation as a miracle worker spreads. The crowds swell, and all this disturbs him. From time to time, he steals away without warning. His friends lose track of him, get worried, and go looking for him. He's got an urgent message, that's clear, but what is it? He doesn't spell it out. He seems reluctant to make too much sense. Often, he answers questions with anecdotes, puzzles, or questions. He asks his followers to love their enemies, but then tells stories that seem to approve of people who condemn or destroy their enemies. He teaches infinite forgiveness, but then tells stories about the torments of hell. He tells his disciples to carry a, uh, to carry a sword and then chastises one of them for using it in his defense. He's obviously, not systematic, he's obviously not a systematic expositor, and aside from some mysterious teachings in the dirt, he never writes a single word. Even Jesus' closest friends consider him an enigma. Sometimes surrounded by a crowd, he seems strangely alone. His silence can speak more loudly than any words. His befuddled followers trail him down dusty roads, arguing in hushed tones about his latest epigram. He is at once serious and relaxed, intense and spontaneous, preoccupied and startingly, startingly, uh, startingly pr uh, present to the aching heart of human, humans in trouble. Sometimes he seems to be brooding, his spirit troubled. Occasionally he gets angry and shows it. He weeps in public. He spits on eyes, kneels in dust, walks on water. He seems to enjoy the company of losers and knaves, and they like him in return. He says he is fishing for human beings, but he does it by talking in riddles. He seems to understand and even approve when his listeners go away annoyed, confused, 
or sorrowful. He's not always tactful or pleasant. No writer records him as laughing. He's not afraid. Sometimes he seems almost eager to offend religious people. When he breaks rules, he does it in the presence of the people it will most disturb. Sometimes he goes out of his way to shock. With an earshot of his mother, he asks, Who is my mother? The most enthusiastic of his disciples, he calls Satan. Jesus is hard to pin down. His descriptions of his his exact relationship to God vary widely depending on the occasion of the audience. In the very same breath, he can call people bad names, hypocrites, fools, snakes, and then assure them that they are all his little chicks, whom he would go and like to gather under his wing. A peace-loving man, he says he comes to bring a sword. In the end, it is the Roman sword that draws his blood. He stands bound and mute before his accuser. He goes to the slaughter like a lamb, and he hangs dying. He asks God to forgive his killers, even though they haven't asked for forgiveness, nor shown the slightest interest in it. Although his enemies act like they know exactly what they are doing, he tells the world in his dying breath that they don't. Then he asks God, with whom he claims the deepest intimacy, why has he abandoned me? Does this odd fellow look like someone we'd want to call God? I love that question in the end. Does this odd fellow look like someone we want to call God? I contend that maybe our tendency toward that docetic belief, maybe like the recipients of this letter towards the end of that first century, is because the human frailty and weakness of Jesus militates against everything that we value in our culture. We value power and control and position. And yet Jesus, in his humanity, shows us something very different. And so maybe it's easier for us to focus on the powerful and controlling aspects of God, God the Father, than the sometimes frail and weak aspects of the human Jesus. What would change in our faith if maybe we shifted that if we try to balance those two views a little bit more, fully understanding God the Father, the powerful one, the almighty one, but also fully understanding Jesus Christ, God incarnate, frail and human. The last thing that John does is he establishes his purpose through invitation. Like any good evangelist, which oftentimes John is considered an evangelist, he then offers this invitation to his readers. The eternal life I proclaim, I proclaim through my personal experience, and I now offer you an invitation into this experience. His purpose in writing is to bring others into the same fellowship he has. Commentator F.F. Bruce refers to this as his apostolic witness, and it's the idea that we cannot but help speak of the reality that we have experienced. When you experience something incredible, you can't help but speak it out. Similar to Paul in 2 Corinthians saying, for the love of Christ compels us. We're compelled, we're controlled to begin to proclaim this message. What John had experienced, what he knew, what he had faith in was so dear to him so transcendent, so meaningful, so powerful that he had no other option but to invite others in to that same experience. I read this and I questioned, do we 
approach it that same way? Do we have that same type of posture? Are we a people of the invitation into that same fellowship? With so many other things we are. You go on a great trip to a new spot, you immediately come home and tell your friends, we went to this great spot, you should go, it was wonderful. Or you find a new restaurant in Spokane or in somewhere else and you want to share that experience. My wife and I love the TV show West Wing. How many West Wing fans are there here? Six of us, awesome, okay. (laughs) So we own all of the seasons, and they've been kind of making the subtle rounds in our small group. We want to invite other people into that process. Take the first season. I think there's probably four or five different couples now who they've gone through, because we want to share that experience with people. Two weeks ago, I confessed that I didn't know what a radish was. (laughs) This was a big deal for me. Jeff immediately came in that next Monday and said, I have to bring you a radish. I want you to taste it. A stupid, insignificant thing like that. But immediately Jeff said, I love radishes. I want to draw Kevin into my experience of radishes. I talked to my mom after that because she listened to the talk online and she was appalled. (laughs) Because apparently I ate radishes a lot growing up. But I I just, maybe I didn't know what exactly they were. But... The point behind all this is when we experience something that's meaningful, that's transcendent, that's powerful to us, we can't help but speak that out. We can't help but invite others into that experience. And that is what John is doing here. Listen, I lived with the incarnate Lord and I invite you into that same fellowship. So what keeps us from living in this posture? Are we ashamed? Are we nervous about offending people and talking about Jesus or the the church we attend? Do we not believe it? Do we lack faith? I think some people would say, well, I've never had that experience that John has had. John lived with Jesus. Of course you talk about it. I, I haven't seen him. I haven't touched him. I haven't heard him speak into my life. And I would say you're probably right. I haven't necessarily had those things. But here's what I would say. And I think this is where we often forget Were you here a couple of weeks ago when Rochelle sat up here and made an incredibly courageous confession? And were you here to see the way that this community responded? Or have you been a part of a small group that comes around a couple who's really struggling and lays hands on them and prays prays for them? Or were you here two years ago when we prayed as a community for Ella and saw a miraculous healing? Or have you ever experienced that time where you show up to church and you're not feeling great, but some random person comes up and gives you a hug or says hello and it transforms your entire day? These are divine experiences. These are the way that we see and that we hear that we get to experience Jesus Christ. God is moving in our midst. We see it every day. And sometimes it's easy to overlook it. Sometimes it seems like it's mundane and it's just usual. But these are divine things. And the world is dying for this experience. There are people outside of this building right now who are dying for the experience of Jesus Christ. And we have that. And we can proclaim that message to them. We can invite them in to that. 
So in this prologue, here's what we can take a couple of points. John is referred to as the evangelist because there's a very evangelistic tone in these first four verses. He says, From my experience, I proclaim the truth of the incarnate Jesus Christ, and I invite you in to that same fellowship. And so as we read this, I think we can embody those four verses. From our experience, we proclaim the truth of the incarnate Jesus Christ and invite others into that same experience. John provides a framework for us for how that might happen. It's interesting that he leaves us with this last truth in verse 4, explaining that his joy is made complete when others are able to experience this same thing. Very similar to Jesus' teaching in John 15, John speaks this reality, and I think it's our reality as well, that his joy, that our joy, will be made complete as we invite others in to this kingdom life. It's not just enough to have it ourselves, but we have to proclaim it. We have to be compelled to say, come and experience this. Let me conclude with this. Introductions are important. The introduction to this book is critically important. Introductions can speak a lot about people that you just meet. So many of you just made new introductions. Those are important things. And a lot can be uh, gathered in just a simple introduction. Malcolm Gladwell, if you've read any of his books, talks about the, the ability for humans to thin slice an incredible amount of information in just a short and simple introduction. Grace, my wife, may not know this, but I thin-sliced her when I met her. And I knew immediately that this was a girl that I wanted to marry. I knew immediately that this was a girl that I wanted to spend a lot of time with. We can thin-slice a lot from this book by this simple introduction. We get an idea of what John is going to chase after, what John is going to go after for the next following chapters by looking at this introduction. It's short, it's simple, it's concise, but it speaks volumes into the rest of the book. It lays the foundation for what he's going to speak about. We learn that John has an incredible personal experience with Jesus Christ. We learn that John is compelled to share this message, to share this encounter that he has had of the incarnate Lord. We learn that John then invites his readers and it gives us the framework for how we are to go forth that we share our experience, that we proclaim the message and the reality and the truth that we have experienced, and that we invite others into that. So John's introduction lays the foundation from which we'll build for the rest of the summer. And all these themes that we'll chase after will be rooted in the reality of the fleshly king that he had encountered. Let's pray, and then the band is going to come up, and we're going to close with one last song.